Greetings, greetings. Shalom, y'all. Peace. <laughs> greetings, good morning. Hope that's a good time for you to be able to see and connect with each other. My name is John Huggins. I'm the chaplain at Berry College. I'm glad to be able to fill in for Brian this morning. Uh, I'm going to talk about uh, a question that uh, will probably seem intuitive to you that it's something we maybe should think about and want to know, but it's not always easy to answer. And the question is, how do you know that you've experienced God? And before I do that, let's take a moment to pray together. Our Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and redeemer, please open the eyes of our heart that we may see you for all that you're worth, that our hearts may be satisfied in you. In Christ's name, amen. So I want to talk about this question. How do you know if you've experienced God? Which might at first seem like an odd question because usually when we experience something, we know it. We know that we've experienced it, and uh, it's not really a question, uh, but we're not always sure if we've experienced God or not. Uh, One of the only times when maybe we're not sure if we've really experienced something is when you're waking up from a vivid dream or something, and you're not sure if what you were dreaming about just happened or not. Do you ever have this problem, this experience? Uh, Recently, I had a dream that I was, we had bought a house sort of quickly, and then Immediately, we're discovering that the house was falling apart all over the place. It was old, and there were poisonous snakes underneath it. And I'm basically having a panic attack in my dream. It's like, why did we do this? Well, I wake up sweating. and It's like, oh, thank God. Oh, no. uh, I didn't buy that house. All right, everything's okay. Or uh, one dream I have that's recurring, I wonder if anyone else has this, is that I'm back in college, and there's a class that I've supposed to have been taking all along, and it's towards the end of the semester, and I realize I've forgotten about it every week, and now I'm trying to decide, is it too late to drop? It's like college instills this anxiety in you that you live with for the rest of your life, and here I am, 20 years out, still having that dream. You know what I'm talking about. I also had a dream uh, not too long ago that uh, Matt Ryan, the quarterback for the Atlanta Falcons, uh, and I were going to hang out. And uh, it's like I just bumped up, uh, bumped into him at the gym, and he says, Hey, John, calls me by my name and says, You got dinner plans? And I said, No, man, I'm good. You know, we can go to dinner. And I'm thinking in my dream, My wife's going to be so jealous. I got to go have dinner with Matt Ryan. But then one of my kids woke me up before I got to actually go do it. And so that was disappointing, you know, to wake up from that dream. I wish that was real. I'm not sure what any of those dreams say about me, but you get the feeling that sometimes you want a dream to be real, sometimes you're not sure if it really happened. It's really bad if you have a dream that you're having an argument with your spouse and you wake up thinking, are we okay? All right, (laughs) were we just having a fight or, or not? We're okay. Well, how do you know if you've really experienced God and not just something else. This is closely related to the question, how do you know if God has spoken to you? But that's not exactly the same question, and I would probably say 
more and some different things about that. So this morning I'm talking about broadly speaking that you've experienced God's presence or action or heard his voice. In history, everyone from monastics to mystics, from pietists to Pentecostals, have sought some immediate, deeply personal experience of God. And perhaps we all want that. We long for it, something our lives to be touched by the transcendent or the metaphysical. As Augustine once said, uh, you have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. I want to say that I think that we do experience God's presence and actions and hear His voice, but that often we're unaware of it. Uh, Other times we might think that we are, but we're not sure. And so how do we know? Is it possible to know? Can we have any confidence? Especially when we see people who think they've heard from God or experienced God and they go do something crazy like start a commune and... um, or make silly predictions about the future, and you start to think, was this just some sort of intense emotional experience, or is it maybe a mental illness even, or the bad side effects of some medication? Um, And then we see other people who claim to have heard from or experienced God, but they seem so self-righteous and proud and seem to be only co-opting God to prop up their agendas or to serve their comfort. Um. An interesting historical note is that uh, Jonathan Edwards, the pastor from Northampton, Massachusetts in the 1700s, addressed this same question. It was during his time that the First Great Awakening took place in the English colonies. He was up in the New England area. And people were having experiences of, of God that were dramatic. He had something like, it, he saw 300 conversions in his own town of Northampton in one year. And he was an intellectual, uh, a graduate from Yale, and he wanted to understand and investigate these things, so he began to do so. He was an advocate for these revivals, but there were a lot of Christian pastors and theologians who were against them, who thought they were the work of the devil or just emotional excess or something like that. And uh, Edwards wanted to really understand it. He wrote two uh, uh, works that dealt that deal with this especially. One was called A Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God, in which he is trying to really understand what happened to a person. What was a person like before they had this experience? What were they like after they had this experience? What was the nature of the experience? What exactly were they thinking and feeling? He also wrote later, more famously, The Religious Affections. And in these, he he actually lays out signs of a genuine work of the Spirit in a person. Uh, Other people like John Wesley and George Whitfield also encountered this in their work during the First Great Awakening. And they would have these moments where, say, a person comes into a church meeting and there's a man who's known for being unfaithful, angry, and abusive. But he seems to experience God in a bizarre way during this service. But afterwards, he is gentle and has a loving disposition. He becomes a faithful person. Uh, Well, even though this sort of went beyond the comfort level of the educated elites, someone like Edwards would say, based on the fruit of that experience, he has experienced God. The Holy Spirit has transformed him. So the fruit of the experience was the best judge, but also the means. What led to the experience? What caused it? Was there some initial indicator like 
preaching the word of God or prayer or something like that. This morning, I want to look at two biblical examples of people who had an experience with God. Not so much to find a formula, but perhaps to take note of a pattern that exists when people experience God. And we're going to look at Isaiah in the Old Testament and Simon Peter and Jesus in the New Testament. So let's look at this passage in Isaiah 6. Uh, This is sometimes called uh, Isaiah's commissioning, where he has this vision of God in the context of worship and prayer. Let's see what happens. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, Isaiah speaking, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I! Exclamation point. Send me. In this powerful moment, Isaiah as it says, is worshiping in the temple and praying. Probably like he had done many times before, but it's a special time in Judah's history after Uzziah had reigned for a long time and it was generally prosperous. What's going to happen next? In the context of this prayer, he has a vision of God. And it's not like this is an everyday thing. It's not like something happens every time he goes to pray and worship. This is particularly striking and moving and powerful. It's overwhelming to him. And as he has this vision and sees this powerful presentation of God, his immediate sense is one of fear. He becomes afraid. He starts looking for a way out. It's like he's looking for the corners or the escape. Where's the exits? I don't belong here. This is too much. The place is starting to shake. I had a seminary professor named Steve Brown who used to say, if you've never stood before God and felt afraid, you're probably worshiping an idol. The next thing that happens is he, Isaiah says something about his sinfulness. He says, woe is me, I'm unclean, and I live among unclean people. It's like he's saying, if I'm unclean, then I can't be here in the presence of God. God's magnificent presence would obliterate us. But think about who this is saying this. It's Isaiah. I mean, he's one of Judah's best people. It's not like he's been out scandalously sinning and rebelling against God. He's a faithful prophet, and yet he becomes aware of his own need and how he doesn't belong here on his own. But then there's this wonderfully dramatic action where one of the seraphim go and touch his lips with with a burning coal. It's an action that's meant to demonstrate what's being proclaimed, that his sin is atoned for, that he is forgiven, his guilt is taken away. 
which is the best possible thing that could happen to you in that moment, right? Imagine you're Isaiah and you're having this experience with God. You're afraid, oh, snap, get me out of here. Um, The best thing that God can say to you is your guilt is taken away. (laughs) Sin is atoned for. And I was like, you can be here. You are safe here now. This experience of divine grace does something to Isaiah. That same seminary professor, Steve Brown, who would say, if you've never stood before God and felt afraid, would usually follow that up by saying, if you've never stood before, before God and felt immeasurably loved, you're probably worshiping an idol. <clears throat> because God can create both experiences in us. The next thing that happens is that Isaiah overhears, so, so to speak, God saying, I have a mission in which I need to send someone to speak for me. Who wants to do it? Whom shall we send? And we see Isaiah no longer cowering in fear, but now standing up. He's like the kid who knows the answer when no one else knows the answer in class. You know, <laughs> call on me. I know the, I know the answer. <laughs> he's saying, here am I, send me. All of a sudden, he's empowered and strengthened and wants to go serve the Lord. And it's not like he's being given some cushy calling. He's actually being given a very difficult one, a message in which the people aren't going to listen to him. They're not going to like what he has to say. I mean, no one would sign up to be an Old Testament prophet if God was not calling you to it. It's not a job. It's not a pathway to health, wealth, and prosperity. I mean, this is a dangerous uh, and often... uh, a calling that'll get you killed. But he's ready to do it no matter what. So that's interesting. In the context of prayer, he has a vision where he sees God for all he's worth. It overwhelms him and brings, leads to humility. And this is what I'm going to say is a key. There is a humble response. It brings humility upon him and repentance. That humility opens him up to an experience of God's mercy and forgiveness. That grace has a transforming power upon him, making him ready to serve and sacrifice for the Lord. And let's now go look at the other example and maybe make some connections in Luke's gospel, chapter 5. This is when Simon Peter sees and hears Jesus for the first time. It says, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, note note that, when Jesus speaks, you hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So he's borrowing Simon's boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. 
And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Another interesting encounter. So there's Simon. And Simon is just the most regular guy. Uh, One of the most regular guys you meet in the New Testament. He's kind of a man's man too, you know, a fisherman. Uh, We don't know uh, how educated he might have been. Maybe he had done the regular training in the synagogue as a young person. Uh, But he hears Jesus teach the Word of God. And we might assume he's listening, he's paying attention, and is moved to a degree by this. But then this person, this rabbi who's borrowing his boat, summons him to a task. And you notice that Peter's a little bit reluctant at first to obey the summons, but he does. And in obeying, Jesus' glory is revealed. He sees the Lord's power at work. He sees, God, he sees Jesus do something that is beyond his understanding, beyond explanation. But notice then Peter's response, Simon, this is Simon Peter, his response to seeing the great catch of fish is not to just jump up and down and celebrate the way that I will this afternoon when the Falcons score a touchdown, you know, and it's like, oh, yeah, he doesn't start saying, all right, everybody, dinner's on me, you know, he's not doing that kind of thing. His, His response is surprising, right? No hooping and hollering, instead he goes and throws himself down in front of Jesus humbly acknowledging his own sin. Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. He's like, he's, I don't deserve for you to do this for me. I'm unworthy. <clears throat> and one of the reasons this is so surprising but is because it's so against our own nature to respond that way. <clears throat> we are so entitled and think we deserve everything um, that when good things happen, it's like, yeah, that's what should happen. It's so unlike the ways of the world where we are eager to assert our own goodness and justify our ways rather than to acknowledge our unworthiness. Pastor Tim Keller has written, in our world where everything is about promoting yourself, repentance feels brutal. But repentance is the only way to be healed. The only way anything good is going to happen. It's not a great resume bullet, you know, if, uh, if... Peter wanted to join Jesus' movement, (laughs) to go and fall down before him and say, get away from me. (laughs) I'm a sinful man. And yet, Jesus responds to him with mercy and grace, doesn't he? He says, don't be afraid. In other words, there's no cause to fear. In fact, I've got a job for you. I've got a role for you to play. Come and follow me. And then Peter, all of a sudden, is no longer on his knees, but up and ready to leave everything and follow him. These must have been powerful encounters, right? We see once again, in the context here, it's hearing the word of God, that is, hearing Jesus. And then an effort towards obedience, even if reluctant and meager, leads to Peter seeing Christ for all he's worth. And in seeing him in awesome power and holiness, it leads to great humility. It doesn't lead to pride and self-righteousness. It's not something that puffs him up with ego, but something that brings him to his knees before Jesus. 
this dynamic of Isaiah and Luke being frightened by some revelation of God, but also they find something compelling about it, is summed up so well in the imaginative work of C.S. Lewis. The image of the lion, Aslan, and Narnia is such an enduring image of Christ because you get a, a real good sense that he is powerful, but he is not a tame lion, as the text, as the book says, right? That it makes sense to you that Lucy, the little girl, asked the question in the story, uh, he seems wonderful. Is he quite safe? <laughs> no, he's not safe, but he's good, and that makes all the difference. You notice, if you're familiar with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, that uh, the other children, Peter, Edmund, and Susan, <clears throat> when they meet Aslan for the first time, they sort of have this weird dynamic come upon them. They feel like their souls are enlarging, getting bigger <clears throat> as they encounter him. And at the same time, there's humility descending upon them so that when Aslan asks, where's the fourth one? <clears throat> where's the fourth child? Because remember, at this point, Edmund has gone to the white witch's castle. Okay, you need to read the book to find, understand this analogy, but hopefully you have. <clears throat> um, but when he says that, all along, Peter has been blaming everything on his brother Edmund. Everything is bad that's happening. It's Edmund's fault. It's Edmund's fault. But when he encounters Aslan and Aslan says, where's your brother? Peter says, it's my fault, really. Like all of a sudden, he thinks, I can't cast the blame aside. This powerful creature sees through me. (laughs) And I find I need to be honest. But that humility always opens one's up to an oneself up to an experience of grace. As it says in the Bible in a couple other places, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. So to humble oneself before God is to give oneself the opportunity to experience a transformative grace. And then that sense, that apprehension or conviction that God loves and accepts me. God forgives and cleanses me. When that is truly apprehended, taking on the force of conviction, it will lead to fresh energy, excitement, eagerness to serve, to follow this Jesus no matter what. And so if that's true, if this is a discernible pattern that I'm not just making up, we might ask ourselves, have I been awed by the presence of God? the actions of God, the story of God? Have I been humbled by a sense of His reality and then also assured of His mercy? Am I now also eager and ready to follow Him? Do I want to belong to Him and serve Him? If not, it is possible that we are worshiping an idol, that is, a nothing, a figment of our imagination, or perhaps are hardened, calloused to the Spirit's leading, soul-flattened. I don't mean to say that this has to be, the experiences of God have to be super emotional, but that there is a core conviction or a sense, a desire, some apprehension of one's spirit or mind that these things are true. 
If we claim to know or experience God, but are only using God to serve our own ideas, such that we find the God we serve happens to never disagree with us. You know, God never challenges us or rebukes us. He's always on our side. Uh, This may be an idol of the heart. And idols of the heart will never satisfy the soul, will never sustain our worship, devotion, or practice. Idols do not humble us or help us in the deepest ways. But you might think, looking at those two examples, I've never seen Jesus do a big miracle like that, or I've never had some otherworldly vision while I'm praying. So, I mean, how can I possibly share in their faith if I've never had such a dramatic experience? Well, it seems that Peter himself provides a kind of answer to that question in the letter 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Look at what he says. The same one who had that experience says this later on. Though you have not seen him, you love him, which suggests this is possible. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith. Again, so faith must be possible, sharing in their faith. The salvation of your souls. And then again in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul talks about how we, we who haven't seen Jesus physically yet do see the glory of God in some real way through the hearing of the gospel or through God's supernatural act in our hearts. Look at 4 6, halfway down here. It says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, like in the creation of the world. Let there be light. He has also shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So they are saying that faith, this trusting in God, pledging one's loyalty to Christ, is itself a true experience of God. That is to say, God has shown into our hearts to create this experience. Uh, This is a way of saying, if you believe, if you trust in Christ, you don't just happen to believe or trust in Christ because maybe you're better at getting things or sensing things than other people or you're a better decision maker than other people or something. It means that God has done something to us first, individually. He's done something to us, shown the light of Christ into our hearts, revealed his glory like he did for Peter and for Isaiah. And in doing so, he created the conviction that we must repent and believe, that we must follow him. And so if you have faith in Christ, you have experienced God. You didn't just happen to vote for him. I'll vote for you to be God. You know, I'll vote for you, Jesus, to be Lord Lord of all. You're not just one of the crowd. God has brought you in on purpose, shown his light into your heart. And and usually, like the monastics and mystics of old, like the pietists and Pentecostals around us, having one experience of God makes us long for more. We want more of him 
who satisfies the soul. And this is good. And if that's you, you might think, well, what should, what should we do? What should I do? <clears throat> well, the first application of any text of Scripture, I think, is to pray over it, to pray about it, to simply ask God. And this is actually a biblical prayer. You see it in the Psalms. The psalmist says, open my eyes so that I may behold wonderful things in your law. He's saying, if you don't open my eyes, God, I can't see it. But if you will work in me to help me see you for all your worth, that will make all the difference. You have biblical permission to ask. Or like Moses saying to God, show me your glory. And then after praying to look to scripture, this is the word of God written wherein God is revealed. In looking to Scripture, we should also look to Jesus, the Word of God enfleshed. He is the one who has the power to reveal God's glory to us. To It's in Him, in trusting Him, <clears throat> that we really experience God. And then lastly, to practice repentance and obedience. And by practicing it, I mean doing these things even if you don't feel like it, even if your emotions aren't quite caught up to the truth, to say, I recognize I need to repent. I recognize you can choose to humble yourself before God. You can choose to obey what you know in the power of the Spirit. And sometimes in our world, people think if you act according to what you feel, you're not being genuine or real or authentic or something. You know, we used to call it being mature. <clears throat> we are actually being real disciples when we follow him, even if we don't feel like it. We are actually being genuine Christians, authentic followers, just like spouses are authentic spouses when they're committed to each other, even if they don't feel like it. <clears throat> so we can pray. We can look to Scripture, look to Jesus Practice repentance and faith. And in doing so, who knows what God might do? We just might find ourselves knowing, loving, and reflecting Him more than ever. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do, like the psalmist, say that if left to ourselves, we can't see. Um, We have heard in these testimonies, that there is something powerful about being in your presence, seeing your glory revealed, that awakens humility and gives us an opportunity for grace, to know your grace and mercy, and that that's transformative. And so, Lord, we pray that you would work in us in such a way to give us eyes to see in these next few moments through the sacrament. Another means of grace that you've established to proclaim the good news to us. And just as those two who walked with Jesus on the road to Emmaus recognized him in the breaking of the bread, pray that that now in these moments our eyes would be open, our hearts would be humbled but also comforted and made strong. I ask in Christ's name, amen.